at its very essence, AI is just another tool. And I think we have to remember with the tool is you have to use it for the right reasons in the right places. It's not a tool that will work for anything everywhere. But I think well applied, the tool can help fix some of the gaps in healthcare as it is beginning to do. And so we have to get beyond the hype and really look at what is working, why is it working, where else could it work? And as with any good tool, you have to have usability, trust, effectiveness, so to speak, all of those things. You're listening to A Healthier Future, where we explore big ideas for transforming and improving the future of health, showcasing the most innovative solutions and best practices today. On this episode, I'm speaking with Pratap Kedkar, CEO of ZS, a top global management consulting firm that specializes in healthcare. Growing up in a family of physicians, Pratap recognized the impact that medicine and healing could have at a young age. Those formative experiences led Pratap to earn his PhD in artificial intelligence, then use those skills to improve health outcomes. Now at ZS, he's analyzing big data with AI and identifying game-changing insights to improve patient care. Today, Pratap and I talk about how we can better use technology to enhance care, the cost of caring for others, and how changing your organizational approach can help you achieve greater goals. I'm Mark Harrison, and together, we're building a healthier future. Good morning, Pratap. Thank you for joining me. This is such a pleasure um, and admirer of your work, and I think you have a lot to teach our listeners on any number of fronts, whether it's AI and healthcare, leadership, having a wife, I think she's a pediatric nephrologist, lots of interesting things to talk about. Start by sharing a little bit about ZS and your role there. And I know you have a long history there as well. Could you share a little bit about what you're about? Thank you, Mark. First of all, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. Really looking forward to a great conversation on a multitude of topics, as you said. So just a little bit about ZS. So ZS is a healthcare consulting company, consulting and services of all kinds. We've been in existence for about 40 years. I have been there myself for about 22 years, so really love the place. Over time, I think what the company has done is a couple of different things. One is really focused in healthcare, because we think that being deep in domain, as opposed to trying to solve problems of every industry, takes away from the depth and the focus and the sense of mission. And I think the second piece is we also focus, the company focuses on saying, let's always begin with data. And I know that 40 years ago, data was probably not as much in fashion as it is now. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the idea of always start with the facts, always start with the data. If you don't have it, go look for it. Figure out where to go get it so you can always make fact-based decisions. And the other thing is take it all the way to implementation. One of the things that has motivated me personally as it does many people at ZS, is it's great to solve the problem, to come up with a strategy, to have innovation. Of course, that's fantastic. But if the innovation doesn't impact people at the end of the day, something tangible, something real in the world outside, it's just a nice innovation. And so going all the way from strategy to impact has been one of the driving forces. So I think those are some of the things the company focuses on. As I said before, we are almost exclusively focused in healthcare, more than 90%. My association with the company is about 20 odd years. I joined it after I had worked. I'd done a PhD in AI, done some work at GE, and then joined this area. And I've been in healthcare ever since. And I took on the role of CEO last year. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you so much. 
So I do have a question about your role as CEO in a little bit, but people bandy about the term AI all the time. And my sense is actually there are often very different definitions inside the heads of the people who are using the term. For the purposes of our conversation today, and here you are, you're a PhD in artificial intelligence. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by AI and tell me a little bit about how you believe it impacts the world of healthcare? Absolutely. So I think at its very essence, AI is just another tool. And it's a fascinating tool because of a couple of reasons I'll get into, but it's just a tool. And I think we have to remember with the tool is you have to use it for the right reasons in the right places. It's not a tool that will work for anything everywhere. The second piece is just like a tool, it can do as much harm if you don't use it well. And so you have to be careful about how you use it. But I think well applied, the tool can help fix some of the gaps in healthcare as it is beginning to do. And so we have to get beyond the hype and really look at what is working, why is it working, where else could it work? And then, like I said, as with any good tool, you have to have usability, trust, effectiveness, so to speak, all of those things. So that's why I approach it in a little bit more of a pragmatic way. I think what is different about AI, which is why I think some people are perhaps skeptical of it, some people are fearful of it, some people are enthusiastic about it, is more of a philosophical thing, which is the claim that it can actually mimic the human mind or the human brain. And I think that's part of the reason why I got into it, because it was like, oh, the human mind is trying to understand itself. Now, isn't that the ultimate? <laughs> that's, <laughs> in, that's kind of deep, right? It's self-looping. You know, we don't know much about many things about the universe, but this three pounds that's inside our heads is probably the most complex, mysterious thing in the whole known universe. And we have very little clue as to what goes on and how it works. And now we are actually attempting to understand. It. So at that level, it's very deep. It's self-referential. It'll be amazing as we slowly uncover the secrets of the human brain and figure out brain versus mind. But that's the philosophical. That's, I think that's fascinating. That's what draws at least me to the topic. That is fascinating. But at the end of the day, it is a tool and we have to apply it well. Your description of AI and this self-referential piece. Not so long ago, I was having a conversation with one of our kids who's really a bright guy. And it was this question of, are we living in a simulation? It got really intense. And I finally said, I need to go let the dog out because um, <laughs> at some level, we may be living in a simulation, but the dog still needs to go out. And so it's fun to have these thoughts, but it also is important to live our lives and maintain our humanity. So I'm really fascinated by the way you describe AI as a tool in a toolbox and to first do no harm with it. You come from a family with lots of physicians in it, if I'm remembering correctly. And you were born in India, I think went up through your undergraduate education in India. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like growing up for you? And are there clues early on about who Pratap's going to be in the future? <laughs> yeah, so I did grow up in India, spent my first 21 years or so there, and then took my first flight. I'd never been on a plane before. My first flight was <laughs> the flight to the US. It was... Uh, in a way, it was a culture shock, but I landed in California, so it didn't feel that different. But back to growing up in India. So I think a couple of things, early early influences. I think one of the things we were talking about earlier was I had nine or ten physicians in the family. I was surrounded by aspects of healthcare, perhaps the unusual aspects of healthcare, the delivery aspect, the caregiver aspects early on. 
And what was fascinating to me talking to all these physicians across three generations was A, the amount of sort of respect and value the profession had and why it had that. It wasn't that people were talking about knowledge or treatment. It was about the difference that they made in the lives of someone. Because I heard these stories from the patients, people I knew in in the town I grew up, who still talk about. To this day, they will say, oh, yeah, I know. Oh, this your, your aunt was a doctor. Yes, she was famous. I was in her hospital three times and she took really good care of me. And this thing happened 40 years ago. So this idea of the bond, this idea of something deeply personal and empathetic between the doctor and the patient, and the idea that, yes, of course, the doctor knows a lot of things, but in the end, what was left behind in the world was the impact on the individual, the patient, something tangible, something that lasted. So to me, the legacy was that. And I think it imprinted on me early on the fact that knowledge is great, but doing some good with it is better. And so you can't really just go after knowledge for the sake of it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not faulting the people who create knowledge. I think that's fantastic. I ended up doing a little bit of that in my PhD. But I think the idea was, and this is why I turned away after my PhD to say, I don't want to work in academia. I don't want to do research. I want to really say, let's take that knowledge and apply it to the real world so that I can point to something and say, you know what, I did that, or we did that, or this is the permanent lasting change it left in the world, even if it's small, okay? Even if it's one person at a time, I think that was very valuable. And I think that, I think, formed early on my desire to make sure that I work in something that applies, and as it so happened, applies to healthcare. And it happened to be later AI and many other things. That desire to have impact, I think, was also what brought me to ZS because the company focuses on things like that. So I think that was one instance of the early imprint, if you will. And then the fascination with AI was really from my teenage years because I grew up reading Isaac Asimov. I don't know how many of your readers remember him now, but he was a giant. And I think his stories about robots and AI, again, the fascination wasn't the math the science. Yes, the fact that it can be done is amazing. But the nuance was how did the robots interact with humans? And I think this is exactly the challenge we're facing in healthcare today. It's not what you can do or can't do. It's what can AI do is the question people ask. And the question for me is, no, no, what will a human do with it? And so it's more about the human than about the AI. And making sure that the two work together is the key question. So I really appreciate the awe that you have for the impact that health and healthcare has on individual folks. Back when I was working in the pediatric ICU, when I had residents and fellows, I would often remind them we would be at the bedside of a child who was very sick, but we knew he was going or she was going to get better. And to us, this was a routine sort of admission to a pediatric ICU. And I would often remind them that Routine to us, yes. Uh, Routine for the family, never. And that this, in fact, was going to be the event that they talked about at Christmas dinners or Thanksgiving or at weddings. This is a seminal moment. And I'm just really glad to hear that you share that reverence for the ability to impact other people. Have you ever read the book Machines Like Us by McEwen? I have not. Put it on your list. It's a novel, and it actually deals with some of these Asimov-type questions about what makes a person human. It's a beautifully written book and it's provocative. I really like it. So not only did you grow up in a family with three generations, nine physicians, by the way, my dad and granddad were 
doctors also, and our son is a physician, and my wife is as well. So we're as boring as you are in terms of not being able to get out of healthcare. So you married a physician, a pediatric nephrologist, and we always used to say that the dumbest kidney was smarter than the smartest intensivist. So I hold her in great regard that she's actually able to take care of kids with sick kidneys. Talk a little bit about what your conversations are like at the dinner table, Pratap, I mean, given what you do and what she does. It's fascinating. In fact, I'll go back to something that you talked about, Mark, which is one of the things that my wife has to do because she's a nephrologist is that she has to stay with the kid and the family in terms of treatment because it's usually a chronic condition. And so it's a relationship that lasts years, right? It's not even one big thing necessarily, but it's something that maybe starts taking care of the kid when they're four or five or even younger. And in many cases, they quote-unquote graduate from her care after they turn 21 and they're turned over to the adult nephrologist. So I think one part of the dinner table conversations without obviously details was this idea of establishing a relationship, continuing the relationship, watching the kid grow as a person, not just as a patient. And to me, that was always fascinating because the discussions were not about their medical condition. The discussion was about how someone was really positive, what impact did they have on their family? How did the family cope with this? I think that's part of the discussion that you don't get in the journals. You focus on the patient and the condition, but what is the family going through? What are their constraints? How do they help each other? How do they keep positivity up and advocacy up? I think some of those stories that we have heard at the dinner table, I think inspired the kids a little bit. Definitely inspired me back to that point of having multiple perspectives on healthcare. Of course, everybody's a patient. I, I do see the healthcare system from that perspective as we all do. But I also got the perspective of the doctor because I'm married to one and I was able to sort of discuss these things. And then the other thing that I did was about nine or 10 years ago, I ended up becoming a trustee on the board of a health system, uh, like in Ramadan, much smaller, called Virtua in South Jersey. And so I began to collect perspectives, the patient, the family, the doctor, the system. And then, of course, I work with healthcare companies and my clients, so large payers, things like that. And so that began to me to be very fascinating to see. Let's see the problem from everybody's eyes. And then you begin to realize, wow, the same thing is seen so differently. And we have erected all these barriers and these silos. And at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is the patient and their family and how broken the system is. I don't want to get into all of that, but collecting these perspectives, including at the dinner table. That's a longer conversation. That's a longer conversation. (laughs) But yeah, uh, but I think back to the dinner table, and I think it had an impact on the kids. Now, none of them became a physician, as it so happens, because they were less interested in biology than some of the other STEM disciplines. But I think the respect, the reverence, the awe, and the continuity over time was fascinating. And of course, it comes with ups and downs for every positive kid. Sure. My wife has to sometimes go to the funeral of a patient. And I think that those things keep it really very real. It's it's not just about the science. It's about changing a life one at a time. How well said. And I'll just, not that I'm at all surprised. It just shows the maturity of your wife as a clinician. When we are young doctors and inexperienced, often we're interested in the technical aspects of providing care. 
Can I do the biopsy? How do you, you know, how does she run dialysis for a kid? Intubation, putting in lines for somebody like me. And after a while, you realize that those are only the technical parts and they're actually the least meaningful. And the most meaningful are the ones that you describe around, you know, saving a life one, one at a time, or at least improving a life one at a time. So let me ask you now, let's flip over to ZS. So you're a humanist. You want to improve the lives of our neighbors. And I have this belief that great leaders use their, the power of their business, their company, their group to improve life systematically for others, as well as be a viable business entity. Can you talk about how you and your partners at ZS think about this and what sort of change you're trying to lead? So as I said before, it's, we've been in existence for 40 years, but when I became CEO last year, one of the things that we spent a lot of energy on was maybe changing the direction a little bit back to your point of how do we use the power of the company to impact the world. And so, of course, a group of us worked towards a new vision. We said, look, we want to be very ambitious. We are 13,000 people and growing. We can actually have a bigger impact on the world than we have had so far. So let's be very ambitious. And we said, let's transform global healthcare. No less. I, I know it sounds like an impossible dream, but I think you need something impossible and aspirational because even if you achieve 10% of it, because it's there, it will be worthwhile. And so we said, all right, let's set ourselves a goal to transform global healthcare and play a role in that 10 years. What can we do by 2030? And so we thought about what would healthcare possibly look like in 2030? It's a prediction game. Uh, we know we'll be wrong more than we'll be right. But what are some of the big areas that will define the state of healthcare in the world in 10 years? And what kind of role could ZS play there? And this goes back to the earlier point that I was talking about, which is looking at healthcare through different lenses and putting that picture together, I think, is one of the really needed ways to try to get to that transformation. Because it's not like each stakeholder, each slice, whether it's a payer or an insurer or a government or a provider or a doctor, they are all trying to do that. I think you referred to this in a podcast I was listening to that you were talking about, which is 20 people sitting around the table pointing fingers at each other and talking about who's at fault and what the barriers are. There are barriers, don't get me wrong. But how do we help overcome the barriers between the stakeholders? And it's the analogy is like a watering hole. In the Serengeti, all manner of beasts come together because there is a common shared goal and they temporarily suspend the fact that their incentives are not really aligned with each other, but they do end up cooperating because there is a shared mission, there is a shared goal. Can we, ZS, help create an environment where we can connect the stakeholders two at a time, three at a time, four at a time, around something that is the shared mission, which is the benefit of the patient? But then how do we do it? And so the other piece that we wanted to include in our vision was not just the connectivity across stakeholders, because we work with many of them, but also the how, because you have to bring it down to the patient. It's not enough to have a CEO of a provider system and a CEO of an insurance company or the CEO of a tech company say, hey, we have a partnership. That's great. How do you get it down to one patient at a time? Back to that, the conversation we were having. And I think that's where data analytics, AI, digital technology, all these are beginning to play a role and say, look, now we have something tangible. Yes, of course, we need the will of the ecosystem stakeholders to work together, but then we need to start bringing in the data, interoperability. And all these are 
things that Intermountain cares very deeply about. And these are important areas for you as well. How do we bring it together, but across stakeholders, not just within, and make sure that we use our expertise in data analytics, technology, AI, to start connecting this so that we can solve problems one patient at a time, one disease at a time, one incident at a time. And hopefully, slowly, that ends up transforming healthcare across the world. Of course, different solutions will work in different parts of the world. And we do have to make sure that whatever innovation we create is not just a first world thing. It is truly innovation for all 7 billion people. Again, I know, very ambitious. We won't get to it all, but let's get to some of it. So I'd love to ask you a question about being CEO of ZS. You have a very unique approach to identifying the next CEO. It's an election. What a privilege and an honor to be selected by your peers, by your colleagues. I mean, that's profound, actually. The thing that I wonder is, oftentimes people in an organization value a sense of stability, and it can be very scary for things to change rapidly. How does ZS balance the need for ongoing innovation and evolution versus the desire for stability as your colleagues elect you? So one could imagine that it sounds like they made a very bold choice in you, but one could imagine that wouldn't be the case. Can you talk a little bit about how the organization culturally frames for ongoing evolution? It's a very important trade-off, or a balance, I should say, not a trade-off, between stability, growth, or evolution versus revolution. You know, one of the hallmarks of ZS is let's always aspire to do more, but based on the foundation we have built. One of the things our founder says, one of the S, uh, Prabha who's one of the founders of ZS. It's named after the two letters of our co-founders. They were both academicians. His phrase is living on a slope. And so the idea is the only way you live on a slope is you keep walking. You keep walking towards the mountain peak because if you stop, you slide back. And so there is this sense built into ZS over its 40 years of you have to continually strive to be better by competing not against other ZSers or even the outside world, by competing against yourself. So everybody, every person, every team, the most profound and important thing is, how are you better than you were a year ago? So you are always competing with yourself, living on a slope, reinventing yourself. If you've done the same thing for four or five years, even within the confines of the company, which is quite broad now, can you go do something else? Can you keep reinventing yourself? So because of that cultural ethos of living on a slope, it's actually not been that challenging to make sure that we continually push ourselves to do more and more rather than be stable. In fact, being stable is considered a very risky thing to do. And so that was very helpful. But I think in terms of radical change, again, one of the ways that at least I was framing this change that I talk about transforming global healthcare was this other analogy, which partly also because of Asimov and space travel stories was NASA wants to go to Mars. Well, that's a 10, 15 year mission. That's a very good aspiration. To go to Mars though, you have to build a base on the moon. You can't take off from Earth and just go to Mars. So the far, which is Mars, results in something that is intermediate, that is the near, and that is the moon base. Yeah. And so then the question becomes, let's not worry about Mars. It's an aspiration. It's out there. Let's not try to go to Mars. That's too disruptive. Let's think about what it needs to make it to the moon and establish a base there. But to do that, you have to change certain things in the now. You have to privatize 
uh, space travel. NASA has to make sure that it's not just the government who's launching rockets all the time because they need an economical way to get payloads up into near-Earth orbit. So you begin to see that this construct of now near, which I actually got inspired by some of the things Virtua was doing, helped us make sure that a very bold ambition, a revolution, was broken down into things that are actually achievable. Ambitious, but achievable in three, four-year stints. And I think having that trajectory created that balance between we are not doing something extremely disruptive, or maybe eventually we will be, but let's build towards it much more consciously and logically in a way that feels exciting, but not impossible. So I think that balance, given that we always wanted to live on a slope, was something that I hope, I think we're all excited about the journey. And of course, the next decade will tell. Yeah, and congratulations again on on your selection. As we get towards the end, let's get a little more granular. Here you are, incredibly successful, first generation here, an immigrant to the United States. And I heard you talk about making things better for all people. And curious if you have any personal perspectives as somebody who your first airplane flight was actually coming from India to California on disparity, inequity, and the role that each of us play in addressing these challenges. That's, again, a topic near and dear to, I think, your heart as well as mine and and many others. I think one of the things that I saw in growing up in India, and I still do when I visit there, I try to go at least once or twice a year, is the big, big variation, the spread. The U.S. has equity, but other parts of the world, including India, have tons more. And so equity was always something that was staring me in the face in some sense growing up, healthcare, income, all kinds of things. I think one of the things that combined with sort of the love of data and analytics that I have is one push that we are making to say is healthcare was always about moving the average, meaning all the things that hospital tracks or the government tracks. It's okay, what fraction of people have you know treatment for type 2 diabetes above a certain threshold? We want to move the average because we want to move the whole distribution, the bell curve. And I think I call it the tyranny of the average. So to me, the aha was actually trying to move the average does not do anything for health equity. To solve the health equity problem, you have to say, forget the average. The average is actually a misleading thing. I'm being somewhat provocative. And let's really just slice up the problem to look into each gap, each micro segment. Get precise. Is it about diabetes? The issues of inequity are different than asthma, different in HIV, different in cancer. Let's try to get into subpopulations as carefully as we can. Of course, without data, all that's not possible, but it's becoming possible. Is Can we get precise? Because then each piece feels solvable, A, because it's smaller. So you always solve for some, not for everyone. Because if you try to solve for everyone, A, it becomes really hard, and B, all you end up essentially doing is moving the average a little bit, which doesn't help the people at one end of the spectrum. And so this idea of getting precise, getting targeted was one. I think the second thing was that what drives inequity is so vastly different once you get down into the subproblem. People are people talk about gender, people talk about race, people talk about income, people talk about other socioeconomic circumstances. But it turns out that one of the analyses we are in the process of doing is if you're talking about early screening for asthma, it turns out that unemployment is the number one factor. But even within asthma, if I'm talking about getting treatment, 
then gender and age become much more important driving factors. So even the solutions that we come up with, I know I'm getting very detailed, but it's almost like, you know what, this beast is so mammoth that without getting into detailed specifics and having a program, not just one project at a time, having a program of these things is the way to make sure that we don't worry about the average, but we worry about specific micro-segments and helping them. And I believe that if you take that left part of the spectrum and using this method shift it better, more towards the right, the average will improve automatically. I, so it's not about what works for all, but really what works for some one problem. At I couldn't agree more. When we work on social determinants of health systematically at Intermountain, is that we're really aware that these are one-by-one one interventions. And that makes them very gratifying. It also makes them very labor-intensive. And increasingly, we're looking for tools to help guide our one-by-one efforts so that they can become a little bit more frictionless than they currently are. I'm going to have two more questions for you. The first is actually about something that we have in common. Both of our fathers died of dementia. And I, for one, found it to be just one of the saddest things I've ever seen, to watch a very dignified person, articulate brilliant, skillful person who spent his life serving others just deteriorate very quickly in front of our eyes. And my heart broke for him because I watched him existing in a way that he would never want to exist. The inspirational part was my mom was incredible as a caregiver. I wonder what you learned about life by watching your dad die of Alzheimer's disease. I'm sure you can relate. It was very hard, but in a sense, there was a lot of guilt because it was harder on my mom. Since I was in the U.S. at the time and I could go back and forth, but I couldn't be there all the time. I think one lesson to me was, maybe it's an abstract lesson, but we, in healthcare, we focus on the patient's outcomes and we need to maybe make that broader and talk about the cost to family. Yes. I think it's true in pediatrics, like you said before. I think it's true at the other end of life as well. And the impact on her, what she had to do to stay up nights to watch him because he was physically quite fit and used to get up at 3 a.m. and say, I want to go for a walk, knowing full well that he'd forget where he lived. I mean, she had to physically stop him from doing that. It was a brutal several years. So I think that impact that we need to think about, not just the impact on the patient, but the caregivers. And I we don't do that enough, Mark. I think it's, we talk about direct costs. It's like, well, XYZ treatment. And direct cost is about somebody getting a bill, somebody generating an invoice. We only count that. But what about all this cost that goes to the caregiver, the family, society in general? I think that was one learning for me. I think my second learning was simply this idea. People are talking about, hey, we're going to live to 150. We should have a second career. Life expectancy is going up. Somebody told me the other day, the person who's going to live to 150 has already been born. It's a scary <laughs> The body will survive better and better as medical science makes all these amazing advancements. But if you look at Alzheimer's in particular, all the billions that we have spent on researching it, we have come up with nothing. Yes, it's, it's primitive. Um, and this idea that the body keeps surviving longer, but the mind can't keep up, I think this is a very dangerous gulf that we are not paying attention to. And we don't want that to open up. Otherwise, we see the situations that we were talking about. Yes. So to me, those two keep me awake, which is mental health has to keep pace with physical health. Otherwise, there's no quality of life. I, I couldn't agree more. I guess I hope my mind and my body go at about the, <laughs> at the same time. That would be <laughs> ideal, right? 
final question. It's a little bit of a two-part question. As, as you probably know, I'm taken by the idea of making good trouble to, to actually poke at things that really need to be poked at in the interest of improving life for our, our neighbors and taking hard stands when necessary. So I'd be interested if you might share an example of when you made good trouble using your position or your intellect or your influence or whatever it might be to really take a hard stand to help others. And what advice you might give to aspiring leaders who are listening to us about living that kind of life. Great example of at least the good trouble that I'm trying to make now is the things we talked about in terms of trying to change healthcare. More specifically around getting multiple parties to agree on something that's really hard to agree on. So to me, part of making good trouble is not just changing the world, but pushing others to change it as well, which I think is harder sometimes because you feel like what's in my control, I can change that. But getting someone else to change their behavior, this connectivity between parts of the healthcare system or two different companies or two different systems, I think that to me is a big part of at least the mission that I'm on. And the other type of trouble, I think, is this idea of, again, going back to some of the things we've been working on, is can we use AI digital, all the sort of new stuff that's happening in healthcare to radically do something outside the U.S. in the third world by basically leapfrogging all the mistakes and things that the Western world made, but not making them at all and going over. So I'll give you an example. The classic example that always gets quoted is Africa. Everybody went to cell phone service without even bothering to have landlines. One of the things we did last year through ZS actually was say, all right, for the specific situation in India, there's no infrastructure, there's not enough doctors. What can you do with digital health and AI and things like that to really leapfrog two mindset changes? One, that healthcare is a place. I think for too long, we thought of healthcare as a location. How can healthcare go to the person as opposed to the person coming to healthcare? Because the person coming to healthcare is not an option for tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people in India uh, because of the poor infrastructure. And so we created this thing called the ZS Prize. It's an ongoing competition to say, let's actually push really hard to get 2,000 ideas, great ideas from students, from startups, from entrepreneurs, so that we can actually highlight some of these, fund them, and basically help others change the world because we will not be able to make all the change. We are not in the actual service delivering of, of healthcare, perhaps as you are. And so use whatever vantage point and influence we have, I have, to keep pushing this idea, push others to make the change, but also make sure that you can be very, very creative so that it's not about transplanting a solution from one part of the world to another, but completely reimagining what that part of the world might need given the new tools like AI that we have. So those are a couple of examples. And I think in terms of advice, I would say always be restless. Personally, to me, my thing is every three years, I need to be doing something different because that's how you make trouble because you go looking for it. <laughs> if, if things are going well, you don't look for trouble. And I think every three years, you need to go look for trouble and say, what else can I mix up? What else can I learn? Where else can I go? where I can help make some change happen, perhaps through others. That's the best kind because it will leave behind an impact and you can move on. Pratap, it's funny. 
I guess we have that in common as well. One of my wife's nicknames for me is Dr. What's Next because she, she knows it's always okay. You got, you got that done. Okay, what's next? I just would like to thank you for sharing your story. And it's really quite an inspirational one. I'll be mildly provocative here. How could we not want to open our borders as wide as possible to get a million more Pratops here in the United States. There's something about people who are brave enough to leave a family and a country they love in search of something bigger and better that is so powerful. And it's what the United States has been founded upon. And we need a million more of you. And thank you for sharing your story. And thank you for your humanity and your service to others. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Mark. It was a pleasure indeed. And thank you for those kind words. Let's continue to make some trouble because that's how the world changes. Thank you so much. I'm Mark Harrison, CEO of Intermountain Healthcare. Thanks for joining us today as we work together to build a healthier future. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app, then rate and leave a review. Your feedback will help us bring you better episodes each week. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.